0: Hello, and you're very welcome to another edition of The Others, the Alan Kinsella podcast, where I look at small parties and groups that uh, stood in elections over the years in uh, in the Republic. This week, I'm looking at the National Progressive Democrats of Noel Brown and Jack McQuillan, a a party that promised hope for a lot, but never really happened. Thanks again for all the support so far. If you can subscribe and everything, that would be fantastic. I should be on all it should be on all major platforms at this stage. I'll be starting a Patreon in the next week or so and I'll have various levels, rewards and so on just to support me in change circumstances. And if you want to contact me or give me feedback, it's an at election lit on Twitter, Irish Election Literature at gmail.com. literature.com is the website, and Irish Political Ephemera on Facebook. Brown's autobiography against the tide. He briefly covers the National Progressive Democrats. Um, It was agreed that Jack McQuillan and I should establish a small radical group to provide a rallying centre for dissident groups in the country. When I did not initially favour the idea, Thornley accused me of thinking only of myself and wanting to go on as an independent forever, which was quite untrue. I felt that I was not leader material. However, since Jack wouldn't be leader and there was nobody else, I became leader of the National Progressive Democratic Party, which was founded in May of 1958. He gave it Thornley and he goes on to kind of um, uh, criticise him for quite a for two or three pages. And then we get, um, Thornley was annoyed when, when the NPD submitted Noel Hartnett instead of himself as a candidate in a Dublin by-election. Soon after Noel's failure to win the seat, David, with the help of right-wing allies, made an abortive attempt to take over the party. Unsuccessful, he resigned and publicly declared his disgust with our politics. In the process, he did much to damage our new small group. Though we parted for a time following the MPD's eventual collapse, both Jack McQuillan and I had held our seats in the 1961 general election, we were to meet once again as members of the Labour Party. So it was really only a small, uh, a small party, and Brown didn't really de- Brown didn't think much of his time in it. In Morris Manning's book, Irish Political Parties, there's a small piece on the National Progressive Democrats. The Socialist Party was founded by two prominent former members of Clann na Dr. Noel Brown and Mr. Jack McQuillan, in the late fifties. Despite energetic leadership by well-established personalities and despite too a very vigorous role in the dole, the new party made little progress. In the general election of 1961, the party only managed to put forward three candidates. Of these, both Brown and McQuillan secured re-election, but it is probable that their re-election owed as much to their personal following as to the appeal of the party. The history of the National Progressive Democrats demonstrated the difficulty facing any small or new party attempting to break into the rigid three-party dominance of Irish politics in the 60s. In 1963, both Brown and McQuillan sought admission to the Labour Party and with their acceptance, the life of the lively but minuscule MPD was brought to an end. So there's not much, not much out there on them. So I'm going to, I've dug up and I'll, I'll start coming through the party uh, their founding statement, their policies and their activity in the Dole, as well as the 1960 local elections where they won five council seats and then obviously the 1961 general election as well. Again, you know, as, as, as mentioned by Morris Manning, the problems of small parties. And we'll see that, you know, you can have two big personalities. And the likes of Brown and McQuillan were people who had admirers outside of their own constituencies. However, it's very hard to create a national organization. You need much more than, well, two TDs can do it, but you need other people on the ground and a lot of like-minded people. And certainly you need a bed of counselors as well to build up the uh, organization. And they didn't seem to have it. And of course, Brown had various bouts of ill health as well. So while the, well, they did do bits of tours of the country, you know, really, they didn't set up a branch structure or, and the people, the people weren't available around the country or interested to set up the party on a nationwide basis. The party founding statement, the statement issued, 30 years of independent rule have resulted not in economic advancement and political maturity, but in the growth and spread of despair and disillusionment amongst the vast majority of our people. This despair helps in ever increasing measure to swell the tide of emigration springing from our economic stagnation. The process of disenchantment had its firm roots in the needless civil war of 1922 and its aftermath of personal rivalries, which shattered the high hopes and lofty ideals of many of those who who then were young. Instead of devoted sacrifice and stern thinking and working to create a prosperous and contented community, The post-treaty leaders confined themselves to bickering about empty constitutional formulae and in our day the overriding aim and purpose is to justify attitudes taken in that distant past. It is a despairing reflection that those who sundered the nation in that time and and played the idle game of constitutional tiddlywinks to the neglect of social and economic realities for years afterwards are still the political leaders of today. Thus there is not nor can there be any fundamental or realistic assessment of our economic potentialities nor any alteration in the unjust and ramshackle social and educational system until these men leave the political arena to younger men who are free of their hatreds and obsessions. In that springtime of national resurgence from 1913 to 1922, there was some hope of reviving the Irish language. Since that time, when we have lost over three quarters of a million of our young people through emigration and when we have had a constant high rate of unemployment, it was nothing short of political insanity to try and force our youth to learn a language we gave them no advantage in the lands where so many of them were destined to live and work. Yet the language revival is said by our political leaders to be the primary object of a national policy, a viewpoint which is the measure of their smugness and lack of realism. Many of those young persons who are not completely sour and cynical are turning in order to find an outlet for their latent idealism to organisations which advocate a a resort to physical force in order to achieve the abolition of a territorial partition. It is ironic to hear them condemned by those who who were themselves the fathers of undemocratic force in this country in 1922. What these young men are seeking, in our view, is a cause greater than mere self-interest and self-advancement, which are at present the only goals set before our youth. By their political leaders. This cause, we believe, can only be provided by a radical program of realistic economic planning and a fundamental revision of our educational system. If success should attend these efforts, partition will be short-lived. Every effort to induce a reappraisal of social, educational and economic policy is met with a whine about the lack of financial resources in order to excuse the lethargy and inefficiency of our government. It can scarcely be be that the leaders of the political parties believe in their own miserly bewailing. There is no miserliness when it comes to spending over six million of the nation's money annually on the maintenance of an army, which is but a museum piece in the present epoch of atomic terror. There is no stinting when it comes to lavishing money on the chain of extravagant and burnished embassies in the capital cities of the world in a vain attempt to obtain prestige by pretentious display abroad rather than by good and just government at home. No thought of economy when over 50,000 pounds is spent annually on a presidential establishment, which apes the grandiose flumery and trappings of the few monarchies left in the world today. Money is squandered freely to serve the cause of political nepotism and to advance the whims and hobbies of our ministries, ministers. When any of these extravagances is criticised, the inevitable reply is that the sum involved is only a drop in the ocean of national expenditure. But all these economies taken together would go some way towards providing a fund to enable a national development policy to be instituted. This would serve to restore the shattered confidence in political activity and in democracy itself, which is opening the door for a sinister dictatorship of the right or of the left. There is reasonable ground for confidence when one considers, amongst other achievements, the harbor rivers to give us electricity, the reaping of wealth from our bogs, the establishment of the sugar beet industry, all this work resounds not to the enrichment of any small section of the people, but to the benefit of all. These attainments show that we have available in the public service men of integrity, who will drive and drive an ability are second to none in the world. Developments along similar lines in other major basic fields of national enterprise will show a like success. Instead, a great deal of our wealth and energy has been used to foster petty artificial industries, which provide little and poor employment, enrich an already wealthy minority and impoverish the consumer. We can have land distribution policy aimed at creating the maximum number of economic holdings, occupied with the program or coupled with a program to process the maximum amount of our agricultural produce, and as well as our traditional outsets, outlets secure new markets for our exports. In our fisheries, we have potentially a vast industry which has been and is still shamefully neglected. National investment in this industry, an enlightened organisation and control, must yield vast and immediate results. The trifling increase in afforestation in recent years serve only to highlight the inexplicable neglect of this great source of wealth and its related industries. Christian welfare. Are our people prepared, even at considerable personal financial sacrifice, to brighten the lives of our old and to give heart and purpose to those who are on the threshold of life? Such a concept of Christian welfare will call out all that is best in all our people who have not abandoned themselves to the worship of Mammon. This generation, we believe, will be as generous in working for an Ireland which will, in the words of the 1916 proclamation, cherish all the children of the nation equally, as were those of other generations who laid down their lives for the same ideal. This, The claptrap of our outworn politicians can stimulate nobody to unselfish national endeavour, but our youth can get guidance and inspiration from the writings of Davitt, Pierce, and most of all, James Connolly, whose ideas and ideals have been effectively smothered by those who have themselves done well out of the rational struggles, out of the national struggles. The present day shoddiness and meanness of our political life can be ended. It is for the youth to take control. The Ireland of tomorrow is theirs. They can make it an example for the world of how a Christian people can create a Christian state, giving justice to the old, the young and the sick and to all an ideal for which it is worthwhile to live and work here. So really interesting policies um, the Irish language, um, obviously criticising the the Civil War parties and um, showing the temptation that people have with the, I think the border campaign was going on then. And even, even this idea of the Christian welfare and a Christian thing and James Connolly And of course, they quote the the proclamation and things like reforestation, fisheries, and other areas where the the nation could, uh, has potential that are currently being ignored. So a month after the party was founded, there was a by-election in Dublin South Central. John Murphy, the uh, unemployed candidate who had been elected, resigned. And they, obviously, they saw it as a um, an opportunity um, for you know to get the get the party um, get the party on the map, as it were. And of course, this was a neighbouring constituency to Brown's. Hartnett actually had been Brown's director of elections. He had been involved with Clann de Publicte. He came from a Republican and a Fianna Fail background. He uh, um, had been a senator as well for Clann na so there was hopes. I, I don't, I don't, I don't know if they thought he'd win, but he certainly would do better. Now he finished last, polling two thousand six hundred and eighty-eight votes, which wasn't bad. That was fifteen point two nine percent. And others actually some the the by-election was won with Patrick Cummins of Fianna Fail. Um, others to run included Sean McBride um, for Clan na that polled just three thousand and thirty votes, and Frank Klusky. Of Labour, um, who polled two thousand seven hundred and sixty-two votes, but it wasn't the result that the National Progressive Democrats wanted. Um, would you know if you if you finish ahead of one of the major parties, uh, you get uh, headlines and stuff. And you know, for a couple of hundred votes, they they would have finished actually a couple of hundred votes more, and they would have finished second on the first count. Um, but that wasn't wasn't to be. In the meantime, that they had set out to become a national organisation, but McQuillan and Brown were very active in the dole They they were hoping to have a, a national organisation, but that didn't really happen, um, and that's that's one of the problems with um, with small parties, in that you set out to have a national organisation, branches everywhere, but it doesn't, it, you know, nothing actually happens. They didn't have. Um, and that, that's what happens a lot of these parties and that they think they can go nationwide, but actually to put the infrastructure in of people, to have people everywhere is really, really difficult. And especially if you just had two people, Hartnett and McQuillan, or Brown and McQuillan, in that it meant they would have had to be touring. Now they did to, did to a limited degree do a tour around the country. But it wasn't uh, wasn't great, and you could see then in the nineteen sixty local elections that aside from um, where they are in in Dublin, um, uh, Brown's base and in Roscommon, uh, they only had a few candidates elsewhere. So it didn't um, the party didn't spread. And In effect, <laughs> I suppose it, they intended it to be a national party, but in fact in effect, it was just. Two local groups, um, with a couple of like there was a, a couple of other places, but it wasn't a, it wasn't a national party. They didn't get the branch structure or anything like that um, in, in place. Maybe you know the support maybe wasn't there, but it, it didn't uh, it didn't take off. And as I say, that's a problem. You know, if you're on the crest of a wave. You don't notice that but if you're if you're a small party and you don't have the the bodies on the ground it can be very you know uh, you, you can just lose a presence um, in a place very very quickly if it's just one or two people there was continued activity and 19 and again, There were some meetings, but the party hadn't really expanded beyond the main bases of Macquillan and Brown. And in 1960, we had the local elections. In Roscommon, uh, the party fielded two candidates. Um, And obviously Jack Macquillan and Mr Pat Finneran, I think it was, were both elected in the Roscommon electoral area. Um, they got two councillors elected to Tipperary Urban District Council. Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Brady was elected to Carlow County Council. They the field fielded candidates in Dublin too, but it was you could see um, just looking at the, at the the results like they, you know there was there was no national. It was really just just Ross Common. And you know Ross Common, the field of candidates: Ross Common, Dublin, Carlo and Tipperary, and that would seem to be it. Um, I think they'd won in Galway as well, but no, um, who didn't get in? But that was the extent of it. For so two such high-profile people, that they couldn't attract, that they couldn't attract more candidates, meant that. Really, it wasn't much um, much of an organisation at all. As I said earlier, they had met, entered uh, their first election candidate was in Noel Hartnett in the Dublin South Central uh, by election in 1958. They failed to put candidates up in Clare, Dublin South West, in Mead in 1959, in Carlo Kilkenny by election in 1960, and the Sligo Leitrim one in 1961. So, even though they were a party, you'd think that they would have, um, I suppose, it showed the strength of the party membership and everything. Wise that really, you know, with just five councillors and and uh, the two TDs, really wasn't much beyond them. That there was no organisation on the ground. McQuillan um, and Brown were still very active in the Doyle. Um, they bought up everything, literally everything one of their main things was they were opposed to um, the common market. Ireland would have um, been putting, th- putting together applications and stuff for the common market at that stage. And um, they warned of the dangers of the common market, especially to the likes of small farmers. And by the time the 1961 general election came along, we get an idea of the party's strength and that it only fielded three candidates. It Brown in Dublin South East, uh, Jack McQuillan in Roscommon, and Kathleen, councillor Kathleen Brady in Carlow Kilkenny. Uh, both Brown and uh, McQuillan were elected McQuillan topping the poll. Kathleen Brady uh, polled uh, 1,484 votes in Carlow Kilkenny, uh, finishing last of the candidates. So really, it, it It was fairly apparent, it was just a a vehicle, well, not a vehicle, but it was McQuillan and Brown. And really there was no appetite. It was a a personality, I suppose, driven party, despite the wonderful ideals and everything that had been uh, put together in their foundation statement. It just didn't catch on. It was just a vehicle for the, the two gentlemen concerned. Again, for the next two years, they continued their opposition, their their vocal opposition, in, in the Doyle to various things. And but were very constructive as well. And then, in 1963, in November 1963, they applied to join the Labour Party. They were admitted as members of the Labour Party and accepted the Labour whip in the Doyle, and that was announced by. Brendan Corge, the leader, and um, James Tully, who was the chairman of the party's administrative council. So that was the end of the National Progressive Democrats. For something that started with such great uh, hopes and so on, it just never really took off. Maybe the effort wasn't put in, maybe there just wasn't a, a market for them, but... you'd you'd wonder if more effort at setting up an organisation nationwide would have made a difference. Thanks again for listening. Um, Please subscribe and whatever if you can. And don't forget, um, in the next week or two, I'll be uh, starting a Patreon. And I've all sorts of things planned for that. Thanks very much.